Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. We will be starting a new season of Jury Duty on February 28th with our examination of the Kenosha, Wisconsin murder trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. You can find a trailer for that new season in our feed. However, before we start Jury Duty Season 4, we are revisiting the trial of Robert Durst, which we covered in Seasons 1 and 2 of this podcast. Jury Duty has secured exclusive interviews with two of the jurors, Carmen Kliteka and John Okanishi, who were part of the Los Angeles panel that convicted Robert Durst of the murder of his good friend, Susan Berman. In our last episode, we heard Carmen and John recall the beginning of Prosecutor John Lewin's cross-examination of Robert Durst. In this episode, they offer their memories of the rest of John Lewin's cross, as well as the closing arguments in the trial. One quick note about this episode. Because I had the opportunity to get into the dialogue about the cross-examination and closing statements in greater depth with Carmen than with John, my conversation with Carmen makes up the bulk of this episode. At the end of the episode, we will relive some of the key moments that each of these jurors mention by playing excerpts of the trial audio that they reference. That's all coming up right after the break. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. We begin today's episode with the resumption of my conversation with juror number 12 and jury foreperson Carmen Kliteka. Before we began this session of the interview, Carmen asked if she could share some reflections about our previous session. Carmen, since our last chat, you had some thoughts about Robert Durst's tone when he was talking about his wife, Kathy, during the cross-examination by John Lewin. Did you want to share those thoughts with us? We started to talk about her medical school stuff. And this, I think, was probably the most important moment for me in the trial was when Lewin was cross-examining Durst and he was talking about her in med school and he was minimizing her accomplishments and in a way trying to take credit for what she had done in this like minimization of Kathy and her accomplishments. There was just a, a description of her in sort of a hateful way and whatever it was, it wasn't love. And in in his description of her being like a drug addict and this terrible person, it was at this moment when I literally felt like I was witnessing the murder of Kathy Durst and her memory and what she represented happening right in front of me. And at that moment, it was so powerful. I I couldn't fight back the tears. And I did my best to, um, to not let anyone see thank goodness for that mask. You know, it just soaks everything up. (laughs) So I wasn't there to see it 40 years ago, but I was there in that courtroom and I witnessed that. That was a very powerful glimpse. What do you think happened on the night that Kathy was killed? I think that night was the culmination of so many little events came together. You know, Kathy was gaining her independence she was pulling away from 
from Durst. We saw evidence of that. She wasn't the same person that he had married 10 years earlier. She was educated now, and she was more confident, and she wasn't as dependent as she had been. And I think that was unsettling for Bob. And I think we've seen evidence of that in his increasing abuse. And this was, you know, it was his, his character, too, to be sort of angry and explosive at times. We saw that with Peter Schwartz. And I think maybe his mindset of being uh, privileged and entitled, I think that contributed to it as well. And I think they had a fight, like other times. And I think that, I mean, this time, it just went a little bit further than before and resulted in her death. I'm not sure that he actually like planned it that way. I mean, I don't believe that he went to the Salem Cottage that weekend with that in mind. I think it just happened. You know, just another fight that went too far. And then just the way he handled it afterwards, it sort of initiated this whole snowball of events that happened that brought in Susan Berman and then later Morris Black. Do you think that if Susan Berman was questioned by the Los Angeles police, that she would have ever told the police what she knew of what happened to Kathy Durst? I do not think that Susan Berman would have said a word to the police, given her history with her father and her loyalty and her training, I guess you could call it. She, I think she was well-conditioned to, to not give that sort of information to the police. And I think she would have done that for her friend, Bobby. Also during the course of this day, Robert Durst said, I believe the killer was either still in the house or in the yard when I arrived. Why do you think he said that? I didn't believe it. It sounded like he was making that up on the spot. You know, there were a lot of times when he was on the stand. And if you've ever seen a child lie and make up stories, they have this sort of mannerisms that they display. They kind of, they may like swing back and forth. They may make some funny gestures with their face. And the taller the story gets, the more exaggerated the gestures. Felt like I was observing that with Bob at times. And there was one thing that he did. And if you recall, he was not on the witness stand. He was actually sitting next to it in his wheelchair. And he was sitting very close to me in my position on the jury. So I was just a, a couple of feet away from him. And I had a full clear view of the side of his face, of his left side. And I noticed that when he would start telling these stories, like when he was telling the story of Danny Cunningham in the farm with no electricity, he would press his tongue up against his cheek and then it would protrude. It was difficult to see like from the front because he was wearing the face shield, but I had a clear view of it from the side. And I sort of started correlating that with these stories. And at that moment, his tongue was pretty active. And then he would give like a little, sort of like a playful smirk to John as, as if he was challenging him. Anything else that you remember about Durst's testimony about discovering Susan's body, 
Anything that you felt was memorable about that? So, Carrie, the most significant thing about his description of Susan in the scenario of him finding her body was just, I think that was the most bizarre thing about it was the way he was describing it. He wasn't describing it as a, you know, a person who just found their friend unexpectedly. He described finding Susan as, oh, look, I found a body, which was just very bizarre. Before we get into the closing arguments, I want to ask you to look back on the trial and tell me if you can remember the moment where you felt that the prosecution had proven its case that Robert Durst killed Susan Berman beyond a reasonable doubt. I think they had proven that, I think, pretty early on. And I would say within the first month or two, I think it was proven. And I think the the rest of the time and the rest of the trial was further confirmation. Do you remember the piece of evidence that you heard where you said to yourself, oh, he definitely did it? I think it's when he said it himself. When he said in the interview with Andrew Jarecki, he said, whoever wrote that note, the cadaver note, that's the killer. He told us himself. Closing arguments. What did you think of Habib Balian's closing argument, and what from it stays with you? In the closing argument, Mr. Balian started off by saying, this is not that hard. And I completely agree with that statement. It was pretty clear to me at that point. And it had been confirmed multiple times by the evidence that was presented. Do you remember anything from the defense closing argument? I don't remember anything specifically that they said. They didn't have a presentation. They just talked. I remember the feeling that I had. And it had like a paternalistic feel to it. Like a sort of a paternal figure is speaking and sort of giving direction and expectations. I felt like I was being instructed to go by feel and ignore evidence that was presented and to show like respect towards your elders and just do what they tell you to do. And in this case, the elder person was Mr. DeGarren. I think that sort of strategy is effective in certain scenarios with certain groups of people. I don't think that's an effective strategy in Los Angeles. Before I go to that next thing, I just remembered we, we left out something that was pretty important. During the whole Durst testimony, they brought him out. He had a urine bag. He had a Foley, a catheter in place. And I remember uh, wondering if this was part of the eliciting sympathy from the jurors tactic or if he truly needed a Foley catheter that day. Who knows? But I remember thinking that and wondering about that. And I remember watching that bag fill up throughout the day. And it would fill up so much. I was worried that it was that we were going to have a spill. And I was wondering if a nurse was going to come in and take care of him or what was going to happen. No one came in that I could see. And then later that afternoon, I think it was, you know, the bag had been taken care of. It was emptied. And so I just, I don't know, I just assumed a, a nurse came in and took care of it. Then later I found out that it was John Lewin. It was John Lewin who emptied the bag. Yeah, we did a whole episode about that because obviously that happened in court, but not in your presence. 
One other thing I wanted to ask you about, do you remember the moment where Daguerrein and Chesnoff got on the floor to reenact the struggle over the gun between Morris Black and Robert Durst? Mm-hmm. What was your reaction to that? It was disbelief. I really was shocked that they were going to do that. I mean, I would have expected maybe they would have brought in some actors or something, but it was just very odd. Not what I would expect from, you know, the two best defense attorneys in the country is how they had been presented. There's one other area I want to ask you about during the trial before we get to deliberations. When Hurricane Ida hit New Orleans or when it was approaching New Orleans, were you in New Orleans at the time? No, I, I actually, I don't remember exactly when in the trial it was. I think Durst was on the stand and it was like the last couple of days that were left. Yeah, it, I used to go, well, I still do. I went to New Orleans once a month and I, I would leave on Thursday night. Judge Wyndham would let us out a little bit early so I could catch that flight. And then I went for the day and on Saturday morning, I was planning to come home. So I knew there was a, a, a hurricane coming, but I was due for my visit, my monthly visit. So um, I went and I knew the hurricane was coming on Sunday night. My flight was scheduled to come back on Saturday afternoon. So I thought I was in the clear. So I went ahead and, and went on my trip. And as I was getting ready to check out of my hotel and, and go to the airport, on Saturday morning, I turned on the TV and, and heard that the airport had been shut down and all the flights were canceled and that the storm had sped up. So having lived in New Orleans, I knew what was about to happen. So the, like the whole city shuts down, people kind of start going crazy. And I knew that if I didn't get out of the city within the next couple of hours, I was going to be stuck there for the next week at least. So I got on my phone and I found an Uber to take me to Jackson, Mississippi, just about three hours away, three and a half hours from New Orleans. And this poor Uber driver, I, I don't think he had any idea of what was about to happen. And I asked him to take me and, and he said yes. And he had about a half of a tank of gas. And he said, you know, I, I really want to fill up before we leave. And so I said, okay, that's fine. We went to a gas station and there was this gigantic line. And I asked him to, to just, let's go to another one. He was hesitant, but I convinced him to go to another one that was further out. I really wanted to get just out of the city and start going to like the edge of town. We tried to get on the freeway that was already backed up. We took the back roads and we got to the edge of town and then we got gas and then we got back on the freeway and well he drove like he, he was fantastic he drove really fast and i sat in the back seat and uh just i was looking up flights and i was able to book a flight to los angeles from jackson so i went from jackson to atlanta to los angeles i was able to to book a flight to get a seat on there and but the flight was going to leave like just as we were going to arrive in Jackson, we had no room for error. Like he had to like, if we were to hit a traffic jam, there's no way I was going to make it. Anyway, we got to the airport five minutes before the flight was going to take off, ran across. There was a bunch of people from Louisiana that were trying to get on that flight as well. 
Luckily, they didn't give away my seat and the doors were about to close. I just barely made it. And I came in on Monday morning at 7 a.m. and I started working on my stuff. And then the other jurors started trickling in around 8, 8.30. And John and Paul, when they walked in, they said, oh, my God, you're here. We thought there's no way you're cut out of that storm. <laughs> and I said, well, you know what? I almost didn't. It's really a miracle that I'm here. And when I walked into the, the courtroom, I thought they would say something about it, the judge or somebody. But, you know, New Orleans is so far away. I don't think anyone noticed there was a hurricane there. So nobody said anything about it. But yeah, that was almost the end for me. There's no way I could have been there to continue hearing the testimony of Bob Durst. And I would have for sure have been dismissed. Wow. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We now return to my interview with juror number two, John Okanishi, and hear his memories of the latter portion of John Lewin's cross-examination of Robert Durst. The one last thing that I want to ask you about Robert Durst's testimony is your memory of hearing him talk about being in Susan's apartment and discovering her body, and particularly John Lewin's questioning him about his experiences in there. What do you remember of that testimony? The fact that he admitted to being, you know, in that house and you know, discovering her body and the fact that, yeah, he was probably there within, you know, minutes or even at the same time as, you know, the real killer was, that has no credibility for me or for the rest of the jury at all. If here's a person who has, you know, inadvertently, you know, confessed to murdering Susan Berman, I wrote the cadaver note, it was her or me, I had to do it. Nick Chavin saying it was her or me, I had to do it. Killed them all, of course. Yes, I wrote the cadaver note. And he's in Susan Berman's house, you know, and discovers the body. His explanation where it was somebody else, it just, it's unbelievable. Did his statements about the temperature of Susan's body, the color of the blood come up in your conversations, in your deliberations? And did the foreperson who was a medical pathologist, did she offer any insight into any of that evidence as you guys were deliberating? No, we we didn't discuss that. I mean, obviously there was a lot of all the, you know, 18 weeks worth of evidence, you know, we could spend, we could spend time on, you know, the smaller, more minute, you know, details, but because there was so much other, I guess, overwhelming evidence to show that uh, Durst murdered Susan Berman beyond, you know, a reasonable doubt, we focused on those bigger things because, you know, to talk about the more, I, in contrast, minor 
pieces of evidence, you know, we, we, we would have been discussing this for, for weeks and weeks. We are now going to hear some of the impactful moments mentioned by Carmen and John in their reflections on John Lewin's cross-examination of Durst and on Habib Balian's closing statement for the prosecution. We begin with Robert Durst's testimony about his involvement in Kathy Durst's medical school applications that Carmen said made such an impression on her. Mr. Durst, would you characterize your level of involvement in Kathy's medical school admissions process? Were you heavily involved in that? I helped her with the various applications. And you previously testified that Kathy applied to how many schools did you say? 15. And you said that Einstein was the best school and she didn't get into any of the other schools, correct? One of the top two or three. I want to show you this document. This is your wife, Kathy Durst. This is from an item evidence that's already been stipulated for admission. And this talks about the courses that she took. Can you go down to the bottom of that, please? List below the medical schools to which you've applied. Columbia, Cornell, Yale, Harvard, UCSF, Medical College of Pennsylvania, Boston University. These are some of the top schools in the country, correct? Correct. So Mr. Durst, when you said a moment ago that she didn't get in anywhere and that Einstein was the first or second best school she applied to, that's just not true, is it? I think it is true. So you're gonna tell me that you think that Einstein is more highly rated than Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Cornell, NYU, and UCSF Medical School? I think Albert Einstein is highly, more highly rated. I guess the answer is yes, I do. Well, Mr. Durst, would, would you agree that as an example, Harvard and Yale are probably the two biggest named colleges in the United States? I wouldn't disagree. Well, so my question is, in your answer, you made it sound as if Kathy couldn't get in anywhere, that she applied to a bunch of second-rate schools, and the only school that took her was Einstein because your dad got her in there. Do you think that that testimony is a fair representation of what actually happened? Objection, mischaracterized. So, again, my question to you is, Mr. Durst, do you think that your characterization previously your testimony that Kathy Durst applied to all those schools and the only one she got into was Einstein and that it was the first or second best medical school that she applied to, do you think that that is a fair characterization? Yeah. Next, we have the moment where John Lewin announced that he had emptied Robert Durst's catheter bag. In case there is some issue later, which I doubt there would be, I noticed that Mr. Durst's bag was um, somewhat full. So I spoke to defense counsel about it. I yeah. told them it needed to be changed. I volunteered, I said I would do it. They told me that they uh, they didn't want to do it. They said if I wanted to do it, they appreciated it. I went back with the bailiff and I changed his bag for him. Certainly it's unorthodox and it's unusual, but I just want to make sure, Look, who knows man. how this comes up at a later point, but Mr. Durst agreed. Uh, we went back, the bailiff was with us. I said to him, you know, I just wanted to try to help you. I'm more than happy to do it. Do you want me to change it? He said, thank you. I changed it. Just want to make sure that's on the record in case at some later point in time, 
there is some allegation of whatever might come up. Oh, Mr. Lewin, I think uh, I think you, you mentioned before you had experience with this. Thank you for uh, for lending a, lending a hand. And I don't no know. problem. I, I have a question. Yeah. Did you wash your hands? I did. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I'm telling you. Okay. This well, could did you need, a, somebody needed to do it. Those, with you. those good old high school days. Thank you. Here is the moment from the trial where John Lewin suggested that David Chesnoff and Dick DeGarren reenact Robert Durst's version of the shooting of Morris Black. Potentially, if Mr. Chesnoff wants to serve as Mr. Durst and Mr. Durst is directing Mr. Chesnoff, then at least we have, my concern is, is just that the record, um, we've got Bob sitting down, it's, it's problematic. The record is important, but, but the jurors, the jurors, the jurors, the jurors' view is more important than the record. I, the record is also important, but these are the decision makers here, so keep that in mind. Yes, let's I would have to talk to my agent. Right. Okay. All right. So we'll slow down here. And so in this uh, in this version, Mr. Chesnoff has is standing up. He's uh, holding the firearm with his right hand. I can't see where his finger is near the trigger. My finger is on the trigger. Figure on the trigger, and Mr. Uh, Mr. DeGarren has placed his left arm on the back of Mr. Chesnoff's shoulder. He's grasping the firearm. A little bit different from the way Mr. Durst described it. Here, he's got the thumb over the, the uh, barrel. And then his hand is over the... His four fingers of his right hand are over the front of the firearm. The thumb is over the top of the firearm in this example. That's right. You know, the only issue we've got is, is it's an interesting demonstration, but Mr. Durst isn't involved in No, we're going to ask Mr. Durst if that, if that looks right or not. Oh, okay. Does this look right, Bob? That looks right to me. All right, and then you wrestled and fell backwards? Can, can we have Mr. Durst describe, rather than having counsel lead him through, we would like Mr. Durst to describe what happened and then counsel can act it out. But we don't, it's leading if they're saying it and he's saying yes. Well, I'm going to allow some leading here. Uh, Mr. Chesnoff uh, was, was, uh, was falling. falling backwards. I might not get up, though. <laughs> <laughs> you need to look toward me. Okay. And we've got what happens next? The gun went off. What? The oh. gun went off. Where, where were you and where was Morris Black when the gun went off? Crying on the floor of the kitchen. So you fell backwards? <laughs> 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 Mr. Chesnoff has done his best Hollywood falling back. Like still grasping the gun, finger on the trigger. And we'll stipulate that Mr. DeGarren uh, got got down with him. <laughs> then he won't actually have to do it. <laughs> Where's the television camera? For you? <laughs> this is my favorite part of the whole trial so far. <laughs> Next, we have John Lewin challenging Durst's story about buying marijuana from a friend named Danny Cunningham. You bought a pound of marijuana from your old friend from college days, correct? Correct. You, you know, I noticed, Mr. Durst, when you were testifying, you didn't give a name. Why didn't you give the guy's name? Why did you just call him an old friend from college? Well, I don't want to, don't want to get him in trouble. 
you're concerned that in 2021, he's going to get in trouble for a pound of weed that he sold 21 years ago. Is that your testimony? My testimony is I did not lose his name because I did not want him to get in trouble. Well, here, you don't have a choice. What's his name? Danny Cunningham. Danny Cunningham. I assume his name is Daniel Cunningham? I knew him as Danny Cunningham. And you knew him from college. That means you went to school with him at Lehigh? Each of these things that you bring up has to do with me abbreviating something or speaking loosely. I did not know him from my college days. I knew him from my graduate school days when we were both at UCLA, a PhD program for economics. Tell me about Daniel Cunningham. What do you know about him? I know about him? Yes. Tell me everything you know about Daniel Cunningham. That will take quite a while. Oh, I'll wait. Okay. Daniel Cunningham dropped out of the PhD program at about the same time that I did, and he moved to Garbersville, and he bought land contiguous with the Redwood Forest. Mr. Durst, this morning I showed you a handwriting report. Do you recall that? Yes. And you agree you had a chance, you looked at that handwriting report, correct? I had a chance, yes. And I put the, was Mr. Henderson briefly put it up on the screen. Do you recall that? No. After you ended up looking at the handwriting report, I was examining you regarding your friend who you bought the marijuana from. And what name did you say? What was his name? Danny Cunningham. Mr. Durst, are you aware of what the name of the handwriting expert on the report that I gave you was? No. Lloyd Cunningham. Maybe they're related. Is it possible, Mr. Durst, or is in fact what happened that similar to the movie Usual Suspects, you looked at this report, you saw the name Cunningham, and that's the name you decided to give when you were naming your marijuana dealer. Isn't no, that what that happened? That is not possible. So it's a coincidence that you came up with that name, even though we showed you before that it says Lloyd Cunningham on the report? I assume it is a coincidence. After all, I know they're related. And here is some of John Lewin's cross-examination of Durst about his account of coming upon Susan Berman's body. But Mr. Durst, you're now saying that in fact you were in Beverly Hills at Susan's house. So how did Emily know that if she was just babbling? I am not saying I was in Beverly I am saying that I arrived at Susan Berman's house on Benedict Canyon before the killer had left and that I promptly myself left. Well, I want to stop you. So now you're saying that the killer was actually in the house when you were there? I believe the killer was either still in the house or in the yard when I arrived. Mr. Durst, haven't you testified that Susan's body was cold? I did not testify that Susan's body was cold. Do you have it, do you have it ready to go or not? I put my hand over her face. I might have left that out to see if she was breathing, see if I could feel breath. 
and it felt cold. Well, what do you have to say about that? Her breath felt, her face felt cold. Her, she's dead. What do you mean her breath felt cold? Was she breathing on you when you got there? No, she was not breathing. So how can her breath be cold when she's dead? She's a stiff. It was, I put my hand on her face and it was cold. That is, so Mr. Durst, let's go back to what I said a moment ago. You said the killer was in the house. I asked you, well, Mr. Durst, didn't you say that Susan's body was cold? You said, no, I never said that. Now you're saying that Susan's body was cold, correct? I'm not saying her body was cold. So what was cold, Mr. Durst? Let me stop okay. you. Do you. Do you agree she can't breathe on you? Would you agree? Her face was cold. Her face was cold? Correct. So you believe that her face would have been a different temperature than the rest of her body? I have no idea. So the part of her body, well, you picked her up by the, by the arms and the hands. Remember you're saying you lifted her six inches off the ground? Correct. She was cold, wasn't she? Her face felt cold. What did her, what did her arms and hands feel like when you picked her up? When I lifted her up by her arms, I did not feel it was cold. But you said her face was cold, correct? Correct. If her face was cold, Mr. Durst, would you agree that even though you're not a forensic pathologist, that would indicate she'd been dead for some period of time? I don't know whether a period of time is five minutes or an hour or two hours. So it's your position that she might have been only dead for five minutes, her face is cold, and that the killer is still in the house. Is that what you're telling this jury? Correct. We can start again tomorrow, Your Honor. Finally, here is a brief portion of Abib Balian's closing argument on behalf of the people of California. This has been a long trial, but I don't want you to be confused. Just because something is long, just because it involves a lot of evidence, just because it takes a long time to produce to you, that doesn't mean it's difficult. Please don't confuse the length of time it, it took to present three murders to you with complexity or difficulty, because at its heart, this case is easy. This case is not difficult at all. That concludes this bonus episode of Jury Duty. Join us on our next episode as we conclude our conversation with Carmen Kliteka with her reflections on the jury deliberations, the verdict, and the death of Robert Durst. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Terracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.